The Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus again in reply spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The feast is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. He said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Come to the feast, says the Lord. That is the topic of this evening's reflection meditation, and it was originally to be given last week on the eve of Thanksgiving, so I thought it was especially appropriate to say come to the feast, but there were all of about four people here. So we just decided to do benediction and skip the talk last week. So what you're getting tonight are leftovers, Thanksgiving leftovers. Whenever we feast, whenever we gather with family or friends to eat, to celebrate special events like a birthday or an anniversary or some other occasion, a graduation or even a wedding. Whenever we commune with people, whenever we share life with others around a table and with food, that's a fundamental part of the human experience. And I, being an an extrovert and being from an Italian-American family, I especially enjoy meal sharing. For me, it's the most communal and life-giving and relaxing thing. It's no surprise, this being a fundamental part of the human experience, that it's also part of Jesus' experience. And it's also frequently, throughout sacred scripture as we see, the context of God's revelation, of God's self-sharing with humanity, which of course culminates in Jesus. A Bible search I did on my Bible app, my Bible app, uh, came up with uh, the word feast 172 times in sacred scripture, celebration 94 times, banquet 44 times, dinner 28 times, etc. Because this is the foundation of all existence, actually. What is the foundation of all existence? God himself is a communion of persons sharing a divine life of love, a communion of persons united in sharing love for one another. One of the greatest images of the Trinity, the image I used actually for my ordination holy card and then used for my 25th anniversary holy card, 
was the famous Rublev icon of the three divine persons celebrating and inviting us to their feast, to their intimate communion of love with them. Maybe I can make a big image of it and that could be the future, the future meditation for P3. But in any event, God himself is a communion of love, as it were, gathered around a feast in heaven. And so God communicates and shares himself in the context of feasts. The natural human experience of feasting is used by God to invite us to the supernatural feast of grace, of life, of love, of salvation given by God. Note that the old covenant was observed by a Passover feast. Of course, the new and eternal covenant is experienced through a Eucharistic meal celebration. And eternity is described as being lived in a wedding banquet, which is heaven. So in this talk, I'd like to share with you some meditations on those feasts. Now, I could spend the whole talk focusing on just one of those feasts, but I'd like to offer an overview and focus on some specific examples of feasting in the Christian life. Hopefully, I will inspire you this evening and also give you food for meditation, pun intended, in the future. Humorless attendees this evening. <laughs> There, that got a laugh. I'm not usually a punner, but I couldn't resist that one, right? There's a debate as to whether punning is, the, the punners think punning is the highest form of humor. I'm one of those people who's willing to admit that punning is a form of humor, so if anything, it's the lowest, right? In any event, I couldn't resist giving you food for meditation. So we hear about feasts, and God reveals himself, speaking of feasts, in a number of parables that Jesus tells, including the one I just read to you from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22, this parable of the wedding feast. Note that the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, may be likened to a wedding feast. The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Why a parable? Why this kingdom of heaven may be likened to, or the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be it may be described as the Lord speaks in parables because one cannot take one simple declarative phrase and with that phrase perfectly exhaust and comprehend and communicate to us in what heaven consists and what the kingdom of God consists. And so our Lord uses parables. He uses, anal uses analogies because by these analogies we can capture, we can have some flavor of, some idea, some sense of the reality, the truth that he's trying to communicate. So words cannot exhaust and totally explain these realities. Analogies give us a glimpse of these realities. So the Lord says the kingdom of heaven may be likened to. It's like a wedding banquet. That is, what's a wedding banquet? What's a banquet? It's being, being feasting in the presence of God, right? Celebrating communion with him as one does with other persons when they go to a wedding feast. We're talking wedding reception, right? Wedding reception. But notice that in this wedding reception, this feast, that is the kingdom of God, as ultimately realized in heaven, is not automatic. Right? You have to be properly dressed or you get thrown out, right? All are invited to this feast. Every single human person who's ever existed is invited to this feast of heaven by God. But they're only chosen, that is, they only pass muster, they only receive a favorable judgment if they answer the invitation by preparing properly, 
That is, of course, by being faithful to the Lord's commandments, to his law of love. That's one of the parables, perhaps the greatest parable of all, which I really think, and I think many scholars or theologians and faithful would agree is, is the greatest parable of all because it most beautifully portrays our relationship with God the Father is the parable of the prodigal son. Note that being in the house of the Father is an analogy for life with God the Father, whether it's being united to him and being in his house by grace in this life or living in his house eternally forever in the next life in heaven. Of course, in the parable of the prodigal son, the sinful younger son leaves his father's house, that is, he rejects communion and fellowship with his father, he rejects that love, for a life of dissolution and sin. But when he returns, he's welcomed back with a celebration, with a robe, with sandals, with a ring, and they kill the fatted calf. And scripture describes it as a celebration. And this, of course, is an analogy for repentance, turning away from sin, and going back to the house of the Father, repentance, and the Father's lavishly generous forgiveness and acceptance and welcome, which is portrayed as a celebration feast with the fatted, the prized calf. Now, the older son, the father goes out and begs the, you know, remember the, 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 the dialogue between the father and the older son. The older son refuses to enter the celebration, but the father begs him to enter. This is an analogy for the stubbornness of pride and the persistence of God the Father in inviting us to return to him, that is to enter the feast and enter the celebration. Of course, Jesus' life, not just the parables and the stories he tells, but the actions he does are often taking place in the context of a feast, of a meal, of a celebration. What's his first miracle, of course? Again, a wedding banquet, a wedding celebration, a wedding reception where he saves the day and makes the reception a success because, talk about a failure, do you want to go to a wedding reception where they're only serving water, right? <laughs> That's not fair, of course, to people that uh, suffer from alcoholism. I, one of the most beautiful and awesome weddings I ever celebrated was two recovering alcoholics, faithful members of AA. There must have been 300 people there. Dry wedding, right? But it was awesomeness, right? In any event, you get the idea. You know, water's good. Wine is better, right? Jesus saves the day, saves this couple's wedding reception by turning the water into wine. But of course, by doing so, he shows his blessing, his presence in the sacrament of marriage, and that's an image of heaven, as we will see. Dinners in homes are often the context for Jesus' self-sharing, for the telling of his parables, for entering into communion with others, and especially for entering into communion with and calling back sinners to himself. For example, in the fifth chapter of Luke, Levi, who's a notorious collaborator with the evil occupying Roman, uh, Roman forces, being a tax collector for the Romans, Levi gives a great banquet for Jesus, right? And he invites all these public sinners. And Jesus comes. He, he goes to his home. But he uses that as an occasion to teach a lesson about his coming to call not the righteous, but sinners, right? Sick people don't need a doctor, he says. I'm sorry, well, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people need a doctor. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Beautiful message, beautiful invitation to sinners in the context of a meal in a home. And of course, Jesus' home away from home outside of Jerusalem in Bethany is the home of Lazarus and his sisters, 
Martha and Mary. He often goes there, as scripture describes, and it's at their home, as scripture says in John 12, Lazarus and his sisters throw, them, throw him a dinner party. Right? So that's how it's described. They're throwing him a dinner party. And they invite all these people. And what happens at this dinner party? Mary anoints him for his burial. It's a sign of what is to come in the great Paschal mystery of his passion, death, and resurrection, the consummation of all things. At the Last Supper, of course, in the context of a sacred Jewish feast, in the context of a Passover celebration, Jesus institutes the new and everlasting covenant in his body and his blood. And of course, that new and everlasting covenant, that Last Supper, is perpetuated, it's lived, it's relived every time we celebrate the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Of course, noting that the Last Supper, that the, the Mass is not just a reliving of the Last Supper. Most importantly, it's a reliving of the whole Paschal mystery, of the Passion, which begins with the Last Supper. The passion, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and sending of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're celebrating at Mass. Not just a, re a re recalling of the meal, right? But everything that meal entail entails, which is that total sacrificial gift of self. You know where this is illustrated beautifully theologically, actually, is in the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, where it doesn't start. The Passion doesn't start with the Last Supper. Where does it start? It starts in the agony in the garden. But the Last Supper is portrayed. Where is the Last Supper portrayed? It's when Jesus is crucified and dying on the cross, there are flashbacks to the Last Supper to show the intimate union between those mysteries, right? So the Paschal mystery of Christ that begins with the Last Supper, that is the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, the salvation of humanity, that action, that sacred action that takes place on Calvary and in the tomb is perpetuated and relived in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The Mass is a sacrificial meal in which we relive the Paschal mystery and most fully share in the life of Christ through Holy Communion. We are so blessed to be in his presence and to adore him really and truly present in the most blessed sacrament. But this should serve as a reminder for us that the reason our Lord has instituted this sacrament was not merely so we could kneel before him and adore him, but most importantly, so that we might receive him into ourselves through Holy Communion, through this participation in this sacrificial meal by which he pours himself out for us. And in doing so, we also partake in a foretaste of that eternal heavenly banquet, which again is described as a wedding and which we'll revisit again in a minute. The word Eucharist, I was gonna emphasize this especially last Wednesday again on the vigil of Thanksgiving. The word Eucharist is a Greek word which means Thanksgiving. When we celebrate the Mass, when we receive Holy Communion, we are giving thanks to the Father in the Spirit for the gift of the Son who has saved us, and we offer up the Son on our own behalf because he's the sacrifice acceptable to the Father that makes us acceptable in the Father's eyes. And that salvation that we receive in Holy Communion is the greatest thing that we can give thanks for, this most blessed sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. In the Acts of the Apostles, we see that the church, the infant church, faithfully celebrates the Eucharistic feast, following the example and the command of our Lord. But note that in the early church, in the apostolic age, the celebration of the breaking of the bread, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the celebration of the Eucharist, of the Mass, was always followed by an agape, that is, a celebratory dinner which prolonged their thanksgiving and communion with one another. 
it's kind of like when you go to mass with your friends and you go to a big Sunday brunch afterwards and really enjoy that. That's like your agape, right? So it's the celebratory, in a sense, earthly meal, which gives thanks to God also and continues that communion amongst us that is especially celebrated and takes place in the spiritual meal of the Eucharist at the Mass. The Eucharist is a foretaste of heaven. Again, heaven is described, as we heard in that parable from the Gospel of Matthew, as a wedding feast, a wedding reception. Now think about wedding receptions. Everyone pretty much loves going to wedding receptions, right? Except for priests, that's a whole nother story, right? I mean, it can be, they can be enjoyable, but after a while, anyway, wedding receptions are awesome, right? We do enjoy going to weddings, don't we? We get all dolled up, right? And we get, get there early, and we go to the church, and we sell them, and then we, you know, and then you, you can't wait to get to the celebration and just celebrate this beautiful new union, this beautiful new family of this love which is realized and blessed by God in this new marriage. And they're usually friends or relatives of ours that we love dearly, and we're happy to be there to celebrate with them and for them. And what happens at a wedding reception? You get there early and you have the cocktail party conversations, which is great because you're like moving from person to person. You're catching up with all your relatives and friends, right? Then you enjoy being seated and sharing the meal with those at your table. And of course, there's the ceremonial cutting of the cake. You enjoy the meal and the, and the cake or the cupcakes or whatever the latest fad is, right? The, the cake pops or whatever they are, right? And then you enjoy the music and the dancing. Right? What is a wedding reception but just a continual feast for hours and hours of enjoying the company of others in the context of a celebratory meal and music and dancing? My friends, that is the greatest analogy and image that we are given of heaven through the revelation of God in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, sometimes we think of heaven, we have these popular, you know, cultural images of heaven as, you know, little little chubby angels floating on clouds playing harps, right? And you even see that sometimes also in classical art, right? But the greatest images that we have in heaven, of heaven, are that it is a wedding reception, a wedding feast. It is the eternal celebration of the wedding of, of the union of, of the becoming one of Christ, the spotless lamb, and his faithful bride, the church, that is us, if we're blessed to make it there. And that's why we especially see that the Eucharist is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet in those words that come from the book of Revelation, which of course describes heaven as this great eternal wedding feast, when the priest elevates the host at mass and says, behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world, words of St. John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, and then from the book of Revelation, Blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb, to the supper of the Lamb, right? Beati quia decenam anivocati sunt. Blessed are those who are called to the banquet of the Lamb. That's right out of the book of Revelation. That is, blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is the greatest image that we have of heaven. And so, my friends, whenever we gather with friends, whenever we gather with relatives, even maybe if we just sit at our cubicle and have our little sandwich at lunch or whenever we're having a meal, let us never fail to offer thanksgiving and to realize that every meal that we have, as simple as it is, even if it's a, I don't know, 
7-Eleven taquito on the run. Something, of course, which would never cross these lips, right? I'm much too much of a foodie snob to eat something like that. I can slum with the best of them, right? Five guys, burgers and fries. But 7-Eleven, mm, I'd probably have to be desperate and starving in that case. In any event, no matter what we eat, we are called to say grace. And the reason we say grace is basically we are recognizing, we're, we're actually dedicating this action, this meal, this eating, and this food to the glory of God, that it may serve our health and the health that, that, that we may be strong in serving him. But also in doing so, we're giving thanks to him because we recognize that what we are about to receive comes from him. So every time that we gather for a meal, whether it's individually or ideally sharing a meal with others, let us never fail to give thanks to God. Never fail to give thanks to him, realizing that it's also in the context of meals, in the context of feasting, in the context of celebrating that God has made himself known to us and has established not only the old, but the new and everlasting covenant in his body and blood. So let us always, whenever we eat, whenever we feast, whenever we partake of food with others, give thanks to God. Let us also always remember when we gather in this holy place, on Sundays especially, or any time we come to Mass, or when we come and make a visit to the tabernacle or here for exposition and adoration at P3, let us always remember that we have been invited to the feast. Come to the feast, says the Lord Jesus in the parable of the wedding in the Gospel of Matthew. Each one of us has been invited to the feast of the life of God. Through grace in this world, especially through the greatest gift of God's grace, which is the most blessed sacrament of his body and blood, which we are so unworthily but so joyfully pleased to be able to receive into ourselves. Let us always be fully conscious of the greatness of this invitation and pray that we can always worthily receive the Lord in this great banquet, in this great feast of his love, which is the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. And let us pray that we will persevere in celebrating this feast here and in being faithful to the commandments that this feast gives us the strength to observe, gives us the love to observe. St. John Paul once memorably referred to the Eucharist as a school of love. Right? Because we learn love from the Eucharist. The Lord pours himself out in love and shares himself with us in the Eucharist. That teaches us how to love, pouring ourselves out in love for others. But remember that the sacraments, more than being signs, they are efficacious signs. They contain the grace they signify. Just as, Jesus is, as the Eucharist is a sign of Jesus pouring himself out generously in love through what looks like bread. Right? That that reception of the, of the gift actually gives us the love, gives us that sacrificial love that enables us to love as he himself does. So may we always be fully conscious of being invited to this extraordinary feast and persevering in celebrating this feast as worthily as possible, persevering in living truly Eucharistic lives, especially through the frequent reception and the holy and worthy reception of Holy Communion. Let us pray that we will persevere and one day be welcomed into that eternal heavenly banquet that the Lord invites us to at the end of our lives. My friends, the Lord invites you always, come to the feast. Answer, here I am, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.